0: The sermon that you're about to hear is from Pastor Paul Borman at Hope Lutheran Church, located in Tigard, Oregon. For more information and for more content, go to HopeInTigard.com. You're going to think that I'm some kind of humbug or romance grinch, but I just, I can't let you have it. This is not a romance story. You know, as much as we want it to be, this is not first and foremost, primarily, it's not a, a story of how a biblical prince and a biblical princess ride off into the sunset together. It, that's not what this principally is. It, it is that on a lower level. And it's beautiful on, on one level. You know, Ruth is a biblical princess. She's shown that over and over again. And, and Boaz is a biblical prince. He's a man whose name means strong. And he's a man who has shown us throughout the book what, what true manhood looks like, how he uses his strength to serve people and protect people and how he uses his wealth to be generous and to sacrifice for people. And so, yeah, on a lower level, this is a story about how a true biblical prince and a true biblical princess do end up together. And I also do hope that you're starting to root for them as a couple. You know, I hope that you've been invested with in them, with them throughout this sermon series. But, I'm not going to let you have it. This is not a romance. When you think about why this book is in the Bible, it's not here to give us a good romance. You know why this is here? You know why this particular text from ruth chapter 4 verses 1 through 12 you know why this is here it's to give us details 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 and more legal details <laughs> you know I, every single sermon I, I i feel like i find one or two things that i'm worried about in my sermon preparations and 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 today, the thing that I was worried about is that I was going to have to give you so many details and I was going to have to interpret so much Old Testament legalese and and fill in so much context that eventually everybody's eyes are going to, you know, gloss over. and, And I have this picture in my head and I hope it doesn't happen, that the people are gonna get in their cars and go home today and think to themselves and wonder out loud to each other, what in the world do sandals have to do with anything? <laughs> you know, I'm hoping that that's not what's going to happen. And so in an attempt to avoid that, you can look inside your service folder and you can look and, and I've put together a kind of a list of details that will help us keep track of where we're headed today. I'm going to talk through the the first few of them right now just to start building out the details that are going to help us see Jesus our Redeemer today. The first one is this. We have to talk about what is a kinsman Redeemer. And to see that, we go back to the book of Leviticus where, where God had put this statute into place that said that if an Israelite person becomes poor and destitute, what they can do is they can sell the land that had been allotted to them. And one of their closest relatives has, has the first dibs to do that. That would be the kinsman redeemer. And so the kinsman redeemer can purchase the land and so be a blessing to their relative. That's what a kinsman redeemer is. And a second detail that you, that you need to know, it's, it's important, is that there were two kinsman redeemers in this circumstance. There was, there was the nameless kinsman redeemer that we meet in this account, and then there was Boaz, and Boaz was number two. The third detail that we need to take into account at the beginning here is that the year of Jubilee renders all of those things irrelevant in the end. This is another Levitical statute. You can look back at the book of Leviticus to read more about the year of Jubilee. It would happen every 50 years. And what God said is that on the year of Jubilee, in this year, everyone is to return to their own property. And so... (laughs) You've got to remember back. I'm going to give you so many details today, it's not even funny. You've got to remember back to when the Israelites had gone out of Egypt. They wandered in the desert for 40 years, and they finally came into the land that God had promised them. And when they came into the land, uh, each family was allotted their own land. And God's intention for their land is that that should be their land forever. For as long as they inhabit that land. And so what God said about the year of Jubilee is that everyone should return to the land that was originally allotted to them, even if you had to sell it because you had been poor and destitute. And so if we can put all these details together, what we have as a situation is we have two kinsmen redeemers who are there to, to purchase the land of two women who had become poor and destitute with the thought hanging overhead that in the year of jubilee even if you pay the money to buy this land in the year of jubilee it will be returned to the family debt-free unless of course there are no sons to take possession of the land so there it is there are the details that are going to get us started here today that's the situation it makes me glad that the narrator interrupts the legalese for a moment. <laughs> he interrupts it to, to give us a little bit more of the taste of the, of the situation. The narrator set up this book like a, like a play, where there are different scenes and there's a lot of dialogue. You know, Everybody has the chance to speak. Ruth speaks, Naomi speaks, Boaz speaks, the workers speak, the people of Bethlehem speak. Everybody speaks, including the narrator. In his narration, he includes things that are relevant and he gives color to the dialogue that's happening. And one of the most significant places that he gives color to the book of Ruth is in verse one. In verse one, Boaz is sitting at the gate and he's, he's inviting the other kinsman redeemer to come and participate. And, and if you're looking in your English Bible, what you'll see that it says is that Boaz said to the other kinsman redeemer, come over here. My friend. And the reason that most English translations go that way and translate it with my friend is because they don't know what to do with the actual Hebrew that's there, because the actual Hebrew that's there is kind of hilarious. It's a, a play on words that Hebrew lexicons for throughout centuries have understood to mean something like, Come on over here, Mr. So and so which is a very different understanding. Right? And and further on, I told you I'm going to give you so many details today. Most commentators agree on this, that Boaz would not have called the kinsman redeemer Mr. So-and-so. He would have been more respectful than that. He wouldn't have talked to a close relative like that. He wouldn't have talked in a legal situation before the elders of Israel like that. And so it's almost... You know, it's very safe to say that the narrator is putting words in Boaz's mouth here. He's telling us who this guy is going to be in the story. He's going to be nothing more than Mr. So-and-so. You know, it's not unlike when my mom would used to label the, the kitchen cleaners under the kitchen sink with labels that said, Mr. Yuck.
1: You know,
0: maybe... Maybe you remember examples like that too. The narrator is telling us, this guy is not going to be anything. He's going to be a guy who fills a place and he's not going to be anything more than that. He's going to be just Mr. So-and-so. And And I didn't think much of that detail um, except that later on, in this section, the narrator chimes in again. He speaks in his narrator kind of way. Again, maybe you recognize the narrator was talking this time. It's in parentheses in the text where the narrator is filling us in about the sandal. About how it was custom in that time that when property was exchanging hands, that you would exchange sandals. And the narrator put that in. He interrupted the story right after Mr. So-and-so has told everyone, I will not redeem it. So again, the narrator is filling us in. He's saying, here's why this guy, this Mr. So-and-so, is so-so-and-so. It's because he's not going to redeem this situation. You know, he could afford it. He's choosing not to. and We can look at that. We will. Do I dare give you more details? (laughs) I will. Mr. So-and-so, if you want to imagine him like this, you can almost imagine him as being a cartoon character with dollar signs for eyes where he's sitting down at the table and he's doing a cost-benefit analysis of what it's going to be like to be a kinsman redeemer for Naomi and Ruth's situation. You know, at first he sits down and he's thinking, this is a slam dunk, right? At first he's willing to be the kinsman redeemer. He's thinking, this is great. This is a win-win. I'm going to buy this land and I'm going to redeem this old woman uh, from her time of need. And people are going to look at me and they're going to say that I did a great thing. And... I'm looking at Naomi and Ruth, and I'm thinking to myself, they're not going to have any kids. And my kids are going to get to keep this land. It is a slam dunk. It is a win-win until Boaz speaks up. And if you've got your English Bible open at this point, I will encourage you to read along in verse 5 to see what Boaz said that made Mr. So-and-so change his mind. Boaz said this, that on the day that you buy the land from Naomi, I will acquire Ruth, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. Now, if you were reading along in your English translation, you're probably giving me a funny look right now. Because in your translation, and in the way that I learned about it in Sunday school when I was a kid, you know, you're reading it as when... Mr. So-and-so acquires the land, Ruth comes along with the land as a package deal. And you might be understanding it as if he buys the land, he has to marry Ruth. And I think that was the way that it was taught to me as well. But I got to tell you that that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense linguistically with the Hebrew, and it doesn't make sense um, when you think about the Hebrew law, the Levitical law, either, In the the Levitical law, there's nothing there that says that if you as a kinsman-redeemer purchase someone else's property, that you have to marry anyone that comes along with it. There's nothing in the Old Testament that says that. And we have no evidence to believe either that there was even peer pressure at that time that it was a kind and good thing to do and a a cultural thing to do for for a kinsman-redeemer to marry a widow. There's nothing there. And additionally, in the Hebrew, we have good evidence to be able to say that what Boaz really said is that in the moment that you buy the land, it doesn't matter. I'm going to marry Ruth. And so you can imagine Mr. so and so with his dollar signs for eyes and he's doing his cost benefit analysis in the back of his head and he's thinking to himself if Boaz marries Ruth they might have a son and if they have a son then they're going to get the land back when when the year of jubilee comes. And so Mr. so and so walks He walks away from the table. He said, I will not. I can't do it. It, It's going to endanger my estate. And we could critique that. We could critique the way that Mr. So-and-so came to the situation and and he could have looked at the situation thinking to himself, there are two women who are destitute here and I, as their relative, have the opportunity to redeem them and and, and to give them everything that they need. But we could critique the way that he came to that and just thought to himself, what's in it for me? We could think about that. But we have to be very cognizant of the fact that if we hold up Mr. So-and-so like that, All we're doing is holding up the mirror to ourselves. There's another reason that the narrator may have chimed in to call the kinsman redeemer Mr. So-and-so. Because you know who else is Mr. (laughs) So-and-so? You and I. Mr. So-and-so is, is every man. Mr. So-and-so is you and I. Don't, don't we do the same thing? We, we come to so many situations in life doing a cost-benefit analysis, thinking about what's in it for me. How am I going to come out of this being okay, right? We're Mr. So-and-so. And that puts us a whole, in a hole, right? We are just as unredeemable. And we are just as unredeeming in our lives as Mr. So-and-so is, especially when we put him next to Boaz. I have heaped details upon details on you so that you can start to see how amazing it was that Boaz did what he did, that that he came to this legal transaction and he says it doesn't matter if you get the benefit of the land. I'm going to marry Ruth. And I'm going to break your heart again, and I'm going to assure you that Boaz didn't do this for romance. He just didn't. He did not marry Ruth for romance you should believe him when he said what he said he he explains to the elders of of the town of Bethlehem exactly why he married Ruth and, and, and this is what he said he said I will acquire Ruth the Moabite Mahlon's widow as my wife and here's why I'm going to do it in order to maintain the name of the dead so it will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown Boaz states it clearly He's not marrying Ruth out of romance or even out of love. He's marrying her for the sake of a At this point, we've piled up enough details so that we can get a good picture. So that I can start to explain to you why I have been pushing so hard for you to know that this wasn't romance. Mm -hmm. It wasn't romance. I'm doing this because, really, the message of the book of Ruth is the message of the entire Bible. And the message isn't romance. Yes, the Bible loves romance and celebrates romance. If you want proof of that, you can go to the book of Song of Songs. And and the Bible loves romance emotion and celebrates emotion, if you want proof of that, look on every page of the Bible. And especially look at the book of Psalms. The Bible loves romance and it loves human emotion, but if you want to see the main message of Scripture and the main message of this text in the book of Ruth, you'll see that the main message is this. Even though we were dead, by the grace of God we live. And even though we were spiritually destitute, by the grace of God we have been made rich. Right? Isn't that what this this text is about? Isn't this this text about how How Boaz came in and he said, I will redeem this situation so that Elimelech's name will live on, so that the dead man's name can live on. And and didn't Boaz come in and say, even though these aren't the people that are closest to me, I will redeem them and I will take their destitution and I will make them rich. Right, can I pile even more details onto you? By doing this, Boaz stood to lose a lot for himself. A lot. If he and Ruth had a son, that son would repossess his grandfather's land in the year of Jubilee, and and, and Boaz would lose the money that he invested into that land. And, And more than that, because Boaz would then have him as a son, that son would also inherit a large chunk of Boaz's inheritance. Boaz is exhibiting incredible generosity. And he's doing it. He's going far beyond what the law required. Again, more details. Levitical law said that if your brother dies... And has not um, given his widow an heir, then you as his brother should marry his widow so that your brother can have an heir. And so what Boaz was doing is he was taking that law and he was taking it far past its requirements, and he's saying, even though Elimelech is not my brother, he's my my distant relative. And even though Ruth is not Elimelech's wife, she's his daughter in law, I am going to fulfill this because I love the Lord. He he went so far past the law to redeem, to make sure that Elimelech's name would live on in his community. To make sure that Naomi and Ruth would be cared for, loved, and even rich. You get that awesome image of a redeemer. Now, can we make the jump? This is the the beautiful, life-giving jump that we have been building for. There is a reason why the New Testament so often calls Jesus our Redeemer. The Old Testament made it so clear what a Redeemer is and and what a Redeemer does and how self-sacrificing a Redeemer has to be. And, and, And one of the most beautiful, the most beautiful example of a kinsman Redeemer in action is the book of Ruth. And so I think I can dare to say this this morning that this section that is so filled with legal detail just might be one of the most profound presentations of the gospel of Jesus in the whole Bible. (laughs) Can you see what Jesus did behind all of the words and actions of what Boaz did? Boaz was not a brother, but he made himself one and redeemed. Jesus was not obligated to redeem us, but he made himself our brother, and he paid the price for us. Boaz, he went way beyond the requirements of the law to pay the price so that Elimelech's name would live on and so that Naomi and Ruth would leave their destitution and become rich in his household. Jesus did the same. He went way past the requirements of the law. He gave his own divine life so that we would live on. And so that we could leave our spiritual destitution behind and live rich forever in his kingdom. Jesus is the true redeemer. And do you remember what price he paid? The Bible is so clear about this. Remember when I said that the book of Ruth is the message of the whole Bible? The Bible is so clear about this. The wages of sin is death. If you sin once, you are guilty of sinning against all the commandments. You are guilty of breaking everything, and you are deserving of dying an eternal death in hell. That is the spiritual destitution that we were in, and that is what Jesus has redeemed us from. The wages of sin were death. And Jesus paid that price by his death. Jesus did not have to be our Redeemer, yet he was the only one who could be. The story of Ruth and Boaz is not a romance. But the story of our Redeemer is certainly one of love. undeserved love that we can only describe as grace. That's our Redeemer, Jesus. Now, I may have not allowed you to imagine this story as a romance. And the reason I did that is because I wanted you to see something better than romance. I wanted you to see the divine love that Jesus has for you. And I may have poured onto you more details than was maybe helpful. But I did it so that all the details might add up so that you can see one thing, that this is not just the story of how Ruth and Naomi were delivered from their physical destitution. This is your story of redemption, too. This is the story of your redemption, how when you maybe shouldn't have been cared for, you were cared for. And when there was no reason for anyone to love you, you were loved by God himself. And when you didn't deserve to be redeemed, you were redeemed by Jesus. I thought about doing this for a hot second. I thought about taking off my shoe. (laughs) I'm not going to. I don't think anyone wants to see that. But I thought about it. Because I want you to know beyond a shadow of a doubt. I want you to know just how real and legal and binding it was when Jesus paid for your redemption. I want you to know how real it is that you were spiritually destitute, but no longer. (laughs) Because of the redemption of Jesus, you are rich beyond your imagination. I want you to know how real it is that, no, you did not have a home, but because of the redemption of Jesus, you have an eternal home that will go on and on and on. And I want you to know how real it is that we did not have any reason for anyone to pay the price for us. And yet Jesus paid the price for our lives with his. Amen.